All right, so uh, last week we, we took a look at the first parable, which was the parable of the soils. And uh, we're going to pick up again and take a look at the next parable. Um, and so if you're in Matthew 13, let's all stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up at verse 18, where we covered a little bit last week, but we're going to refresh our memory because it's an important parable, and I'll explain why in a moment. Verse 18, chapter 13. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside, but he who received the seed on stony places. This is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And now he who receives the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received the seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some hundred, some sixty, some thirtyfold. And now we come to the next parable, which is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Verse 24, another parable, which means uh, um, allos, which is similar, like the one we just studied. So he says, this is very similar to what we just studied, and there's parallels to it. And the word parable means parabolos, two parallel lines. You have a heavenly truth with an earthly illustration, so you understand it, and that's how Jesus would teach. He uses stories. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, when, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us to go and gather them up? And he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 31, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, and this is allos, similar to the previous two. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which, by the way, is the smallest seed in that region. It's not the smallest seed in the world, but in the region, the, the audience he was speaking to, they knew this was a small seed they'd ever seen. It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which is indeed the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches, the birds of the air. The birds represent Satan in the previous parables. Same picture here. And uh, mustard plants don't go, grow to the size of trees, so it's abnormal growth. It's odd. They're all looking at going, wow. So when we go back to uh, Israel in November, some of these mustard plants, they're, they're pro prevalent everywhere and we'll see them. You won't see any mustard trees, which is fascinating. Okay, let's pick up. Uh, verse 33, another parable. He spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Leaven is that microorganism, the yeast that you put into the bread dough and you leave it and it rises. And really what it is, the microorganisms eat and then they produce gas. And so that fluffy stuff in the bread is the gas of the microorganisms. I just want to share that with you. Let's move on. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. It was all gas. And all these things, 
<laughs> That's funny. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, he finishes that, but he goes on later in the chapter to explain the parable of the tares, the wheat and the tares. So drop down to verse 36, which is next. Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain the parable of the tares of the field, please. And he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice, everyone say, lawlessness. And will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's 19 times he says this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So let's pray and ask God to show us what he has for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for these parables. That is, you instructed those who were in your presence. Holy Spirit, you're here and we're in your presence and we have ears to hear. So speak to us, lead us into all truth. Bless us, Lord, according to your riches in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a seat. So as, um, as we're going through the parables, last week we took a look at the parable of the soils. And as we saw the parable of the soils, there were four types of soil. One was the path on which people would walk to get from one field to the next. And it was stepped on and it was hardened. And so the, the seed would come out and the, and the sower of the seed, that's the word of God. And, and the word's being sown out onto the, the ground. On the ground that's been trampled, it doesn't take root. Immediately the birds, which as Jesus points out when he explained it, is the devil coming and snatching it out. And so they don't, they, they don't get a chance to hear it very often. It doesn't take root. And immediately it's gone. Then there's the shallow ground, which still has stones in it. And there's not a lot of soil. It does take root, but it doesn't have anywhere to latch on. And uh, when, when the sun comes out, it withers and dies. And uh, those are folks that don't have a lot of character. They haven't been educated. They haven't been discipled. They want to do the right thing. They just don't know how. And when trials come along, they fold. And then you have those that they, they're in church. Uh, the, the, the seed takes root. It gets down into good soil, but it's choked out by the cares of the world because all of a sudden you're worrying about your debt and you're worrying about your possessions and you're worrying about your job and your performance and you're reading the tabloids and you're watching stuff you shouldn't and you want to be, you know, you want to... Um, impress people you don't know with money you don't have, uh, you know, and, and all of a sudden you're in a mess and you get all overwhelmed and you just implode. And then the, the fourth soil is soil that lands in fertile ground. There's no weeds. There's no, there's, there's no stones. It's, it's ripe and ready to receive. It takes root. It gets down into the soil. And as a result, it produces fruit. It produces wheat, some hundredfold, some 60, some 30-fold. And Jesus explains that those are the Christians that are fruitful. And that's where you go from being a ministry to being a minister. And as we saw with the women last week, these were folks that were a ministry. They came in, they had been choked out by the world. They'd been on shallow ground. They were broken and they came in for a one-year discipleship. They, their lives had been, you know, the soil had been prepared. The seed is being scattered. It's taking root. And now we're watching as they're telling their testimony, they're now ministering to you because there's a return on that investment. They're, they're pouring their lives into you as they're testifying of these things and we're touched and, and it, it's, it's ministering to us and we're feeding upon the riches of God's word. He's the bread of life and we're seeing this take place. And this is that idea 
Now, when you look at the, the parable of the four soils, you think, well, only 25% of the world's going to get saved, and this is the gospel, and only 25% is going to get saved. Well, that's not the picture. The picture is, as we've gone through many passages of Scripture, I want to explain the significance that we tend to miss in the passage itself. And, and the reason why this is necessary is because Mark gives a, a, a telling of this parable as well, but Mark adds something that Matthew didn't have. And Mark says, do, Jesus speaking, he says, do you, do you not understand this parable, the, the parable of the soils? Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? This is what's called expositional constancy. You have to understand who the players are in this parable, if you're going to understand all the other parables I'm about to teach you, you need to know who's, you know, who the players are, who's doing what, who the characters are, and, and how significant it is if you're going to understand the other parables. And so that takes me to this place of the significance of, of this parable of the soils as we look at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. I'll read it to you. It says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. So, Jesus explains that the soil is the earth. The seed is his word taking root on the earth. The entirety of his word taking root, producing fruit. And and so when we see this, we realize, okay, this is significant. And as he finishes the Lord's prayer, he then goes on to say, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. This, a lie False is leaven, it's just gas. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who are before you. When you start to take root with this word, you're going to face persecution. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out, trampled underfoot by men. So all of your values, all the things that you hold dear, are trampled underfoot by the governments of man, and you're good for nothing. Then he says, you are the light of the world. So he uses the world again, which is a political statement. And he says, a city, which is a polis, a governing structure, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. So he is glorified. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Jesus says this, and this is where we have a problem interpreting it in today's culture in Christendom because we're pietists came in the 17th century, and since the 1940s, pietism has taken root in our culture. We're antinomials, which is simply, we, we believe that we're saved by grace and the law has nothing to do with it anymore. And, and the church has fallen prey to that. Thus, we haven't engaged in civ- civic duty. We haven't engaged in the culture. And, and you have pastors say, I don't participate in politics. It's, politics is dirty. You know, we've gone through this, right? So Jesus says, don't think that I came to destroy the law, or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is all fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In our culture today, we have, in a sense, three categories of, of theology that dominate the church. One is dispensationalism. And in dispensationalism, we look at the law of God that Jesus said, I came to fulfill, and that we're to, we're, we're to honor it and we're to apply it. But a dispensationalist looks at the Mosaic law as having no bearing on the world today. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I got my get out of hell free card. I've been justified just as if I never sinned. And so I don't really have to do the whole law thing. 
And so the church falls prey to socialism, existentialism. It's, it, we try to adapt, we try to relate, we try to become relevant as we're in a postmodern world and the church begins to shrink. And, and in dispensationalism, we stress the little in, literal interpretation of the Bible. Uh, our eschatology, which means the study of the end time, a dispensationalist is usually pre, uh, pre-millennial, pre-tribulation, which is what Calvary Chapel is. We believe that we'll be raptured before the end of the world, and so why bother you know, polishing the brass on a sinking ship so we don't engage in civic responsibility? The Old Testament animal sacrifices shall be restored in the future millennial kingdom uh, as a memorial only, but not as necessity. And then a covenant theology, which is also prevalent in our culture today, they say that the principles of the Mosaic law have application only to the church, but not to the governments of man, which is dangerous. It accepts both a literal and figurative, a spiritual interpretation of the biblical principles. Usually their eschatology is amillennial, although historical premillennialism exists in covenant theology. And they say that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, never to return, though the principles behind the law uh, continue. The principles, but not the law themselves having to take place on the earth. And then theonomy, which is uh, something that used to permeate our culture, and, and our founders were what, what are called applied theonomists. Theonomy, theos is God, nomos is law, the applied law of God into culture. That his principles in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and also in Exodus are necessary for the governments of man, that our laws should be based and focused on the precepts and the commandments of the Lord. Not the ceremonial laws, but the civil laws. That's where we have the Ten Commandments, and, and our founders would put the Ten Commandments on the edifices of our public buildings, that we are accountable to God. Um, all of our founders were, were educated in that concept. They were post-trib, post-millennial mindset in their eschatology. And they looked at it, and they said that the law of Moses is to be applied to nations today as a means by which they are to govern. That These laws are very important to the welfare of mankind. When it, when it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved. It means that everyone will live under the understanding of what God desires of man, and they will come to a conviction of their sin as a result. Uh, it stresses a literal application of the Mosaic law to modern governments. Postmillennial is their eschatology, and the Old Testament laws are to be applied to governments today and forever. But in America today, especially with our millennials, our younger people, we have been educated, and I was, I was the very beginning stage of that education in pietism. Pietism teaches that Christianity should be purely private matter and that God's law has no place in the governance of nations. It always tells us that we are wasting our time when it comes to being involved in seeing good laws uh, being established in our nation. And they mock folks like myself as folks moralizing. You know, just keep your church stuff out of, out of our civic responsibility. And, and we've, in the church, we've fallen prey to that, that we don't want to participate. I'll give you an example. And, and this is just one of many examples. I'm not picking on anyone. I'm just using it as an example. If someone becomes involved in trying to pass a law against abortion, the pietist would immediately object and say, that is a, a waste of time. Women are not saved by not having abortions, but by hearing the gospel. And we should just preach the gospel. And what the pietist says sounds spiritual, and, and I, I understand their love for the gospel, and I commend them for that. But to, to separate the two and say they're, they're exclusive is not correct. In reality, that statement works against what they want to accomplish, which is the preaching of the gospel, because men come to Christ uh, when, when they're convicted 
And the Bible says that the law of God is a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. And when we remove those laws from culture, it it promotes, as we studied in the text, lawlessness. Lawlessness. The law of God should be honored among men. And the one way it is honored is that it is reflected in the laws of the nation. The preborn should be protected from the murder from murder and unjust death. People who are involved in abortion are merely apt to see their guilt and their need for Christ if the laws of the nation do reflect the law and justice of God. This comes from Genesis 126, where the Lord said, we're to have dominion over the earth. Not that all would be saved, but that that his, his laws would be there to allow people to understand that they're in violation to their creator. And, and what we usually find um, with, with the pushback when we applied this uh, applied theonomy, the pushback is usually found in Romans 13. And, and I get this today as a pastor who engages in the political process. The pushback in Romans 13 is they say, let every soul be subject to governing authorities. This is verse one, for there's no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So they say, we don't have to engage in politics. God's already got that under control. He appoints it. It doesn't matter if we vote or we don't vote. God's going to take care of that. That's dangerous because the text goes on to say, and they use this to justify their position. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves to the point where some pastors and theologians, even here in Southern California, on the radio, a major ministry says that our founders were in violation of God's principles of Romans 13 because they rebelled against King George to create this nation. And, and you, you look at that, and it's baffling, but if you look further at Romans 13, let's put it into context. It says, for rulers are not a terror to good works. Everyone say good works. So there's a contrast. He, the, the author, Paul, is saying they're not a terror to good works, but to evil. So that's the assumption that the government that is overseeing of God is a government that's doing good. You don't submit to communism and fascism and socialism that takes away the liberty of man created the image of God for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. Again, this contrast, and you will have praise from the same, assuming that those rulers are good for he is God's minister to you for good. Meaning applied theonomy, theos, God, nomos, law, applied God's law on the earth, we see that the application of it is good. It brings fruitfulness for man, 160, 30 fold return for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who would practice evil. So in context, the passage declares that we are supposed to participate in the governance of man. And God's law is still in effect today. Now, this is not a theocracy. I'm not speaking of that. I'm I'm talking about laws that give man freedom. And so as we look at these things, the, the, the pietist struggles over this. And when we look at the text this morning, as we take a look at the, the wheat and the tares, and we, we take a look at the soils, what we what we gleaned from last week was this idea that the soils the soils aren't any different in one respect. Every soil, whether the pathway, the shallow ground, the weed choked, or the fertile ground, can all be fertile with one application, and that's plowing. 
You prepare the soil, you scatter the seed. You prepare the soil, you scatter the seed. You prepare the soil, you scatter the seed. And the more you prepare the soil, the hardened ground, you have to plow it. The, the, the bouldered ground, you got to remove those stones. The weed choked, you plow that under. And the more that you prepare the soil, the more fruitful the earth is for the glory of God. Very important to understand. Very important to understand. And this is what God is calling us to. And what's fascinating about this is that when Jesus gives the parable that we studied last week, there needs to come in in the course of history those things that create a plowing effect in the nations. And usually in the heart, what exists in the heart of all men is a desire for freedom, a desire for liberty. We've been creating the image of God. All creation speaks of the glory of God. We know there's something different. And when we're under an oppressive regime, an oppressive government, a plowing effect occurs as you're watching in Venezuela right now. They are suppressed and overwhelmed and there's rioting going on. And this is plowing it because people are crying out for freedom. You're taking all of my wages and I'm serving an elite class that is living off of my sweat and I can't feed my family. And mankind cries out, there's got to be something different. This is not what God intended. And so this plowing effect occurs. And so today, as we now come to this second parable, and the idea of the second parable is an allos, it's, it's this similar to the previous one. And as Mark pointed out, this is a very, the first parable is very important because you won't understand the others unless you understand the players in the first. So let's, let's go through this. Are we ready for the overhead? I want to I take you through a quick, this, this is the sower. He's sowing seed. What is the seed? Let's try that again. What is the seed? Okay, so he's sowing it, and where is he doing it? On the earth. The earth represents the world. Throwing the seed. You with me on this? So, if we need to know the players, on the hard ground... When the seed lands, Satan is the birds, and he comes and snatches it away. The very first public school act was the old Satan deluder act, and the idea was our children would never understand how to be fruitful if they were illiterate. And so they wanted to teach the children to read, and not just read, but read the scriptures so that the word of God would take root in their life. And today, the very first thing you want to do is remove any vestige of that in the culture. The only thing forbidden in, in, in a school is the Bible. You can study the Quran. You can study, you know, meditation. You can stay. Keep the word out. Take it off the edifices of our building. Get rid of it. The stony ground is this absence of a depth of character. So when the, the word of God goes out, there's soil on the surface and you receive it. You're like, that is so cool. I love that but you're not involved in a discipleship. Your roots haven't grown deep. You're not really in a Christian family. You're, you're in a culture that, you know, you, you go to, you, some of these young kids, they go to public school and, and they, their parents aren't Christians and, and they, they study a little bit and then they go to school and they're inundated and, and all the videos that they're watching, they're inundated and their family and they don't have any freedom and it's just struggling and when they're challenged, they wilt. And, and, and this is no depth of character. And, and again, let me, let me share with you an illustration that I've shared a thousand times. I'll do it a thousand more as long as I'm your pastor. And you can get rid of me when you want. Your, your son comes home from school and says, you know, and first of all, morality is not doing what's wrong. And I can say with certainty that this is a room of moral people. You don't do what's wrong. 
but character is doing what is right. So your child comes home from school and say, Mommy, Daddy, all the kids in the school called Susie fat, but I didn't. And you would say, that's the moral thing to do. But you'd look at your child and you'd say, where's your character? And the child would say, what do you mean? And you'd say, why didn't you tell the other children to stop it? I said, well, they would have laughed at me. I would have been the only one in the class. And this is one of the things. How many people believe that two men should marry stand on this side of the room? And in public school, you've got a child over there going, well, I know it's wrong, but all my friends are over there. I, I, I don't want to get yelled or laughed at. I'll go over here. And so it's influencing. And they wilt. Character requires you to do what's right, even when you're in the minority. Martin Luther King Jr. in a prison in Birmingham, Alabama, saying that you don't judge someone on the color of their skin, but the content of their character. And all the pastors in the town, the white pastors said, you're on the wrong side of history, you're in prison. He says, no, you're on the wrong side of history because you're not in prison with me. That's character. The apostle Paul exercised character in prison when he said, stand fast therefore in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. The apostle Paul had character because he realized I'm not in prison because they're imprisoning me. I'm stationed here, much like Admiral James Stockdale said in the Hanoi Hilton when they imprisoned him. He was the highest ranking officer imprisoned in the Hanoi Hilton. He was there longer than almost any other prisoner of war. And he would say, I wasn't imprisoned there. I was stationed there. That was my call of duty to stand in, in, in opposition to evil. And that's a Christian. And when we looked at the doctrine of the lesser magistrate and we studied it last week where you have the aggressor, and you have the victim, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate says you impose yourself to stop the aggressor from attacking. Even though you're going to be in the minority, you do what's right. Now, I had um, a law officer uh, um, who's involved in law enforcement share with me, and it was wise counsel. He said, you know, Rob, I get what you're saying, but it, it sounds to some, they could misinterpret that you're calling for uh, insurrection and armed resistance. <laughs> no. I'm not. I will say this, though. When I shared with you the shot heard around the world, Lexington and Concord, there was a significance about that because Jonas Clark was a pastor who trained his congregation to defend and interpose themselves on the doctrine of the lesser magistrate to stand against the oppression of England for the sake of the freedom of man. And, and they were told not to fire unless fired upon. So when that shot was fired, that was from the British. And basically, Jonas Clark said, game on. And we had the Revolutionary War where we took on the largest empire on the face of the earth that had just defeated the second largest empire and a handful of colonists stood against this great empire and defeated them. And every founder will tell you it was divine providence. So much so that when Benjamin Franklin was at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and they were at loggerheads, and George Mason walked out and he said, this isn't going to work. And as he's leaving, George Washington, who was overseeing it, ran after him, said, you've got to come back. And he says, it's a waste of time. We're never going to agree on this. He said, please. And he beseeched him. He begged him. George Mason came back in. And Benjamin Franklin, the only founder that had his signature on the three founding documents of our nation, which was the Paris Peace Treaty, the Declaration of Independence, and the U.S. Constitution, stood amongst all of these men. And here he was in his 80s. His legs were riddled with gout. And he began to say, have we forgotten so great a friend as the Lord? During the revolution, we sought his, his favor and cried out to him in prayer every day. And now we've abandoned so great a friend. And he said, a sparrow doesn't fall from the sky without his full knowledge. Do you think a kingdom will rise and fall without his, his wisdom? 
I implore that we take three days to fast and pray and come back and reconvene. And that's when they came up with a bicameral legislature. And they prayed. And Benjamin Franklin called for this. And as they, they sought the Lord, and he even said, we didn't win this revolution, this war of independence, without his providence, without his hand. And they cried out to the Lord. And this is what gave us this bicameral legislature never before in the face of the earth. Fascinating. And so we've got to be men and women of character and interpose ourselves. And you remember the whole idea of interposing. I'd share with you the story about Publius Petronius, who was um, the uh, governor of, of uh, Palestine in the Roman Empire. And Caligula was the emperor. And he said, I want to put a huge statue of me in the temple in Jerusalem. And Publius Petronius, who loved the people that he governed, he just said, this isn't going to go over well. And he says, I don't care. And if you've studied Caligula, the guy was wacko. And he said, I want it done. So Publius Petronius met with some of the rabbis and he said, you know, I got to put this thing in there. And they said, please don't do it. It's a violation of God's law. This is a violation of the first commandment, the second commandment. You can't do this. You can't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's a violation of everything. You don't know what you're doing. You can't do this. And Publius Petronius said, no, you don't understand. If I don't do this, he's going to kill me. And the edict came down and he waited till the spring to try to see if Caligula would change his mind. He didn't. So he mustered 12,000 Roman soldiers and he descended upon the temple or came up to the temple. And as he got there, there weren't just a handful of rabbis. There were 10,000 Jews laying down in front of the temple. And their comment as the interposers, they said, we're not going to kill you, but you're going to have to kill us to do this. And Publius Petronius loved these folks. And he just finally looked and he says, I'm not doing that. And he said, let him kill me. He had character. And word went back to Caligula. Caligula gave the order to kill him. And as the ship was leaving the port from Rome to come to Palestine to kill Publius Petronius, shortly thereafter, the Praetorian Guard killed Caligula. Then they sent word that Caligula was dead. And thank God that ship outpaced the other one and got to Palestine first. He was saved and became a hero of the Jewish, of Jewish history. Trajan, who was a Roman general, stood before all of his soldiers and applied the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. He pulled his sword out and he said to his troops, he said, if I regulate in righteousness, use this sword against my enemies. But if I do evil, use this sword against me. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And when the wicked rule, the people grumble. It's intrinsic to man that we cry out for liberty. We cry out for this idea. God made this in our soul. And so this doctrine of the lesser magistrate is we interpose ourselves against those who would seek to use their position to contrary to what God desires. And I shared with you uh, reformed theologians like John Knox, a Calvinist, who said this is what it's supposed to do. John Calvin himself was along those lines. Today in our neo-Calvinist movement, they're pietists. And they've, they've moved away from their founders, John Knox and, and, and John Calvin. And so we look at this, and this is that stoning ground that God wants to plow. He wants to remove the stone, so we go a little bit deeper and have character. And we'll go to the next one so we understand the players. The weed choked are the folks that are, are consumed by the cares of this world. You haven't done applied theonomy, theos meaning God, nomos meaning law, the application of God's law in your life. You've got your get out of hell free card. You're stoked that you're justified. Your sins are cast as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more. You're a new creature in Christ. He's been placed in the Father's hand. No man can remove. You're stoked on that. Everything's cool. And you go right back to your worldly lifestyle. And, and you're, you're running after all the baubles and trinkets of the world. You don't tithe. You, you, don't, you don't 
have your kids go to church. You don't teach them the scriptures. You don't bathe your wife in the water of the word. You, you're more, you're more, you worship at the altar of work or at the altar of pleasure, at the altar, whatever it is. And you're so consumed by all these things and what it is you're watching and, and, and you're getting choked out. And though you go to church and you got roots, when it comes time to have character, you don't produce fruit. You're not ministering to anyone. You're too occupied. You're too busy. Beware of the barrenness of a busy life. You're not touching anyone's life. You're not speaking of the gospel. You go to work and you're too afraid to speak because you're going to lose your position. You're choked out by the cares of the world. And that's dangerous. And this is where we are today. And I was talking to a banker in town and I, and, and, and I asked him here in Newberry Park, I said, who are the, who, who are the richest people in, in Newberry Park? And he said, I can't tell you names. I said, I don't want names. I just want to know if there's a group of folks that are doing really well just to try to understand the culture. He goes, yeah, there's one that, that by far and away are the wealthiest. I said, who are, the, who are they? He said, without exception, the Mormons. I said, wow. I said, you know why that is? He goes, why? I said, because they, they use applied theonomy. They understand sanctification. Sanctification means set apart. They, they apply the law of God to their life and they apply it because they're saved by observation of law. We're saved by grace through faith and, and we're not saved by the law, but, but we honor the law. We're supposed to honor the law because we're saved. They're over here honoring the law to be saved. So they don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around with those who do. They tithe. They, they, they take seriously the Sabbath day. They make sure that their children are educated in, in the spiritual things of importance to them. They do business dealings that way. I'm not saying all. I'm saying as a culture, they do. And over here, we've raked up debt and the, and the Bible says that a borrower is a slave to the lender and we're robbing Peter to pay Paul and we, we, we tip God when we come and, and, and we don't read the word and we, we barely make it to the worship portion, if, if that. And, and we want, if the pastor goes over 30 minutes, I mean, you're getting into my brunch hour and, you know, and forget coming on Wednesdays or Sunday nights. I mean, I, I, enough church. I mean, come on, Right. And, 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 and this is why they flourish, because God's law applied, even though their Christology is off, even though the, the, the orthodoxy of, 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 of their, from, you know, looking at the scriptures is off, God still honors his law, and they're still flourishing. God still honors his law, they're flourishing. That's applied theonomy. They're doing a way better job than orthodox Christianity is. And we're struggling as a culture today in America. And so these are the cares of the world. Christianity is a, a component of who you are. It's not the entirety of who you are. And you get choked out. You're afraid. And the cares of the world have choked out your fruitfulness. And then the fourth segment is this fertile soil. And you know you're fertile because uh, you're producing a hundredfold, 60-fold, 30-fold return. You are now a minister. You're part of the Bible studies. You're, you're discipling. You're teaching our younger kids. You're going and doing hospital visitations. You're, 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 you're able to give because you have extra in your bank account because you've applied principles where you aren't a, a, a slave to the lender. You're not going to work every day to pay the interest on something that you borrowed to leverage your children's future. You're working in such a capacity that children, um, um, the Bible says, blessed is a man whose quiver is full. Children are a blessing from the Lord and a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And you are fighting for a future for them. You're not like the king of Israel that wanted to live an extra 15 years. God granted it. And he said, but in your life, what's going to happen after you is, is your entire nation is going to be destroyed. And he said, well, that's all right. For my lifetime, it's cool. And it's like, well, what about your kids? Doesn't matter. I'm all good. And you're just content with what you have. Forget about leaving anything. Forget about working in the community to make it a place where your kids will be able to have viable 
employment and a place to live and an education where they can honor God and they can be taught the scriptures and their, their religious freedom won't be in, in, imposed upon. I don't, that's conflict. I don't want to contend for the faith. You're choked out. But over here, this is the man or the woman who's fruitful. You're in a ministry feeding others. And this is so important because as James said, if you don't get this, the rest of the parables are a waste of your time. This is, um, um, in Latin, this is a picture of it. You can see the birds down there representing Satan. You can see the stony ground or the shallow ground and the, the weed is dying. You see the weed choked in the third category and then you see the fruitful weed on that side. But today we come to this one and this is the parable of the sower explained. This is out of what I read to you in Mark where it says, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And so now that brings us to the second parable today. And this is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now the difference between the first parable, it was passive. There wasn't an agenda. It was just the way it is in an earth with people with conflicting theologies and conflicting worldviews. And, and we have a responsibility to till the soil, prepare the soil, scatter the seed. But once you start doing that as a Christian, you're going to face persecution. And what happens in the second parable is this is intentional. This is a place where Satan comes out for the sole purpose of malice. You see, in the first parable, there was no malice, there was no agenda, but in the second parable, the wheat and the tares, it's sown by the evil one, it's counterfeit, it looks like wheat, but it isn't, and it has an agenda to destroy and to choke out the earth. And when does Satan come? When does Satan come? Let's look at the picture, work with me here. When people are sleeping, some like you right now. When they're sleeping... The church has been asleep since the 1940s. And we've watched while this constitutional republic of freedom of man is being usurped and we're sound asleep. We don't engage. And when Timothy says to pray for kings and those in authority will live quiet and peaceable lives and all godliness and reverence, and I say this to pastors because it's a pastoral epistle from Paul to Timothy, I go, obviously, you're observing this. So would you please tell me, who are your, your council members by name that you're praying for and the issues that they have to deal with, five issues that they have to deal with so that we can live quiet and peaceable lives and all godliness and reverence and you're praying for wisdom? Could you tell me? And they, you could hear crickets. Okay, I'm sorry. Let's go to the school board members. Who, who are they? A lot of you don't realize that, that the Christians that are standing in our community are being accused of banning books. I don't know if you read the acorn. They're not banning books. They're saying, we don't want this book as required reading. There are classics. It would be better than this. And, and, and one school board member, bless his heart, he's going to come out with a stack of these books and that, that, that they don't want as required reading and say, I'm not banning it. Take one. I bought it. You can have it. Read it. I've read it. I just don't want it required reading for our children. There's plenty of other books, but, but the idea is let's divide and conquer and make them to be and mock them and ridicule them. But where are the Christians standing with them when it comes to the school board meeting? Are we praying? Do we even have any clue what they're up against? We're asleep. And while we're sleeping for the last 60 years, and just look at Calvary Chapel alone, and I've shared this with you, we started in 1967. 10,000% growth. Right here in California, south of Van Nuys, there are th over 350 Calvary chapels. And we've been teaching the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, scattering the seed, but we've been asleep to the agenda of evil. And now we lead the nation in abortion. We're the author of No Fault Divorce, Transgender Bathroom Bills, and we don't participate in thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're sound asleep. 
And so Jesus explains the parable and he says to them simply, he who sows the seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And what are we to have in the world according to Genesis 126? Dominion. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, you and I. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. They have an agenda. The enemy sowed them in the um, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his, all of his kingdom all the things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. The absence of theonomy. God's law applied to the earth. So watch this. This is a polar bear in a snowstorm. <laughs> I think that's it. Oh, here we go. Oh, I, okay, sorry. Yeah, we can shut it off now. I had one more, but I didn't put it in the last slide. Did it make it? Ah, never mind. All right. Well, <laughs> the whole message is ruined because you don't have... No, <laughs> 19 times Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he goes through this. And, 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 and as he lays this out, he wants us to understand, oh, there it is. The contrast between the wheat and the tares. The wheat and the tares. And I want to share this with you because it'll give you great insight into what we're dealing with. Tares have a genus name, and I'm going to screw up all the genus, but I'm just going to read to you. Um, they're called Darnell. That's the common name for, for the tares, Darnell. Darnell. And, and Darnell looks like wheat when it's young. And I want to read to you, typically known as Darnell, it's poison. Ryegrass or cockle, it is an annual plant that forms part of the grass family and part of the lolium gen- genus. The plant stem can grow up to one meter tall with inflorescence in the ears and purple grain. It has global distribution. Just think about that. Darnell usually grows in the same production zones as wheat and was a serious weed of cultivation until modern sorting machinery enabled Darnell seeds to be separated efficiently from seed wheat. The similarity between these two plants is so great that in some regions, Darnell is referred to as false wheat, false gospel. It bears a close resemblance to wheat until the ear appears. He who has ears, let him hear. The spike of it are more slender than those of wheat. The spikelets are oriented edgeways to the rachis, and I'm not sure how to pronounce that, and have only a single gloom. With those of wheat, they're oriented with a flat side to the rachis and have two glooms, so the wheat is different when it gets older. The wheat will also appear brown and ripe, whereas the darnel is black. Darnel can be infected by endophytic fungus, which is, um, the, 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 the term for it is smut fungus. I thought that was a really cool <laughs> term. The French word for Darnell is irrevi from the Latin abracius, which means intoxicated, which expresses the drunken nausea from eating the infected plant, which can be fatal. The French name echoes a scientific name, Latin tumultinus, which means drunk. And some of these ladies can talk about what it's like, you know, that we're here with Teen Challenge. They could, they could testify to what it's like to eat Darnell. And it, and it appears to be su- sustaining but in the end, they're in his death. When our will is united with sin, it conceives, uh, when, our, when, when our will is united with temptation, it conceives sin, and when sin is fully formed, it produces death. And you heard story after story of that. 
But now they're feeding upon the bread of life, God's fruitfulness. And now they're able to produce that fruitfulness in your life. In 1897, I want to talk about applied theonomy, and I'm almost finished. In 1897, the notable theologian Abraham Kuyper, later to become prime minister of the Netherlands, pledged himself that in spite of all worldly opposition, God's holy ordinances shall be established again in the home, in the school, and in the state for the good of the people, to carve, as it were, into the conscience of the nation the ordinances of the Lord, to which the Bible and creation bear witness until the nation pays homage again to God. So evangelical Christians have not been shy of arguing that all nations are subject to God's law. What this uh, might mean in practice has not always been clear, just as varying definitions have been given of the law of God. But the theonomists argue that we should obey all the laws presented in the Bible, those that deal with civic responsibility, not simply the Ten Commandments, but also including the whole of the Mosaic law, insofar as this has not been fulfilled in Christ. We should also expect the state to enforce this observance on all, whether they are believers or not. Now, let me share with you this. At the end of this parable, they said, do you want us to pull it out? And and Jesus' response was, no, because in pulling out the tares, you're going to you're going to destroy the wheat. You see, in our culture, we have, we have differing worldviews and, and the roots get entangled. And so our Christian kids are hearing the gospel and then they go to school and they hear something else. And then you go to pull it out and you're going to affect them adversely. I'll give you an example. When the church has the sword, that's dangerous. The Inquisition, taking the sword and demanding that a, a, a Jew should submit and receive Christ as their savior or be killed that destroys the wheat along with the tares. Because what it does is, first of all, it takes someone who was possibly going to convert by their own will and destroys them and kills them. And secondly, it destroys the church or any future Christians because we have, and I'm still dealing with this in 2017, people saying, what about the Inquisition? It destroys the testimony of the church. We have blood on our hands the Salem witch trials. God never intended it this way. He wants people to come to a knowledge of salvation as we prepare the soil and sow the seed, then they willingly come to Christ. And the difference between the wheat, can you go back to that one picture? The difference between the wheat and the darnel is that the, the, the wheat, when it's fully grown, bows down as in worship and the rest stays strong like I will bow to no one. It's fascinating. But in the early stages, and that requires a lot of work, but in the early stages, they look the same. God doesn't want us to destroy people. He wants us to, to, to contend for their heart. As when Paul went on the island of Cyprus, he contended for the soul of the governor. Theonomy can be defined simply as the adherence to God's law, which would make all Christians, especially Reformed Christians, into theonomists. Uh, defined term more narrowly as a school of thought with Reformed theology, which prefers literal, specific, and detailed application of the Mosaic civil law to modern civil governments. But today we're antinomians. And this idea of antinomian is that we relate uh, this view that Christians are released by grace from obligations to observing the moral law. I got my get out of a free card. I don't have to do the law. You know, know, I I just, I'm not into government. I don't want to do this stuff. And the Lord says, no. It is important that we do these things. We must apply these truths. And so it brings us to the final parable that we were taking a look at this morning. 
And I want us to turn to it, the parable of the leaven, verse 33. Uh, let's go a little bit further back. We have to go to verse 31. I'm almost finished. Hang in there. Verse 31, another parable he put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and bless you, come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was leavened. And this idea of, of this mustard seed growing into this huge tree and if we look at the birds nesting, what do birds represent as we understand the first parable? Jesus says, you have to understand the first one if you're going to apply it in this exegetical constancy. What do the birds represent? Satan. So he points out two things. He, we look in Genesis. Every herb according to its kind, right? According to its kind. So you see this mustard seed turning into a tree and any Jew hearing this would go, that's weird. I've never seen that. That is strange. That's unnatural. That's unnatural growth. And the idea is it's produced according to its kind, but it's breaking the, the natural laws. Unnatural growth. And then the birds of the air nest in it. Um, I got a great Dane. I got it 10 weeks old for Valentine's Day, this big. And it was all paws. I should have known. I'm now five months into this beast and it's about a hundred pounds. And literally it goes into the crate in the morning and comes out and it's bigger. And you're, you're going, this is, this is bizarre. You just watch, it's like. And it's still got 70 pounds to grow. I'm like, and I've made the mistake of feeding it. Sweet dog, though. But to see a mustard tree, you're like, that's unnatural. But in our culture today, we worship growth. Buildings, budgets, baptisms. Buildings, budgets, baptisms. Big church, big church. Keep the butts in the seat in the big church. Ah! And it grows, and it's huge, and there was never anything like this in the first century, but it doesn't matter. Look how big it is. And look how many butts are in the seats, right? And we got to keep this building going. So we got to keep butts in the seats so we can keep the budget where it needs to be. Are you feeling it? And this unnatural growth. And we, we go to Houston, $4.7 billion of real estate in the most prime area of Houston, all dominated by mega churches. And they've got a lesbian mayor who's elected by less than 9,000 votes who demands that anyone preaching against homosexuality must have their sermons subpoenaed and put on trial. And those churches represent hundreds of thousands of people. And if they just vote, if they just prepare the soil and scatter the seed and engage. But the birds have nested. And the birds are prosperity gospel. And for those of you who believe in the prosperity gospel, I believe in the prosperity gospel. Here's the prosperity gospel. You tithe, obey God's law, and your life will be fruitful. 
It's not, well, I'm going to run up a credit card and I'm going to give to this and I'm going to watch it and I'm going to blend it and I'm going to get the guy wet his hand with a napkin and I'm going to get and mail that in and, I'm going to, and then I'm going to sow seeds and then borrow to, no, that is contrary. That is not applied theonomy. That's nowhere in the scriptures. I love faith. I, I love people who have faith. And there, there's folks in here that, that glean from ministries like that and take the best of. They, it's like eating a whole chicken. They, they eat the meat and they spit out the bones. There's lots of bones, but there's some good meat in there. And these mega churches have grown and the birds have nested. And we, and we turn on TV and watch and go, oh, I've been to church. No, you haven't. You're not accountable. You're not part of a Bible study. You're not being discipled. You're getting breath mints when you need a meal. And, and what's the fruitfulness of your life? And why are you watching? You want somebody to blow sunshine your way. But you're not making a difference in the culture in which you live. And here these churches, mega churches, are accomplishing nothing in these areas of town. And so this is this unnatural growth and it's breaking with the order of God. It's unnatural. And, and, and last week we saw this picture of, the, of, of two homosexual men having a baby. I, I, I tried to explain it. Most of you are going, ah, I, I'm lost. You, you had a biological woman who was taking male hormones, who had to stop taking male hormones in order to get pregnant, married to a man, biological man, who was a professing homosexual, but was obviously engaged in a relationship with a biological female. So, and she had to stop taking hormones in order to get pregnant. And, and our news media is celebrating as a, uh, two gay men having a baby. The, the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> and yet we, we promote this and all of us are like, yeah, I don't need to go to a school board meeting. There's no applied theonomy in the church because that's contending for the faith and contending means contention. And I just want to be left alone. (laughs) While we watch the tares being sown while we sleep. And we go, what happened? Wake up. Till the soil. Do the heavy lifting. If not for you, then for the generations to come, have a heart. Leave an inheritance to your children's children. Do something. Engage. You saw these young people up here. We prayed for them. Give them a future. Oh, there's contention. Have character while being the minority. So what? Do it. And then as it goes on, and this is the conclusion of one of four. I'm kidding. You're already... Stop it. You're, wake up. <laughs> then they talk about this idea of the woman who puts a measure of, of leaven and she goes away and the whole thing is leaven. It's this microorganism. It just takes over the wheat, the dough, and just filled with gas, just air, no sustenance, just void of anything. And, and that's, that's our school system. We don't educate. We indoctrinate. <laughs> And, and, and what, is, what is the result of it? We, we, most progressive state in the union, and what do we have to show for it? Debt, implosion, violation of God's principles, and, 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 and this idea of softening the truth for the sake of political correctness. And, and the Apostle Paul warns about this leaven 90 times it's spoken of in Scripture, and it's always in a context of negativity. Galatians 1, 
Leaven is referred to as hypocrisy, the leaven of false teachers, the leaven of compromise, the leaven of Herod, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, a false gospel, leaven, Galatians 1. Acts 20, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples Uh, after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone day and night. False teachers, 11 false teachers will come into the church. And he says, stay awake. Second Corinthians 11, for such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself transforms into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transforms into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. The, the, The false teachers, false Brethren, leaven, Corinthians eleven twenty six. Paul would point out in Second Corinthians eleven twenty six. In journeys I've been often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of wilderness, in perils of the sea. But he says in perils among false brethren, and they're resting in the trees. Romans ten three. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, false righteousness. They've not submitted to the righteousness of God. It's lawlessness. And then we come to this parable, the leaven, and I leave you with this, the leaven of hypocrisy, the leaven of false teachers, the leaven of compromise, the leaven of Herod. The leaven of Herod is corrupt government. The leaven of of the Pharisees is, is the Pharisees would add traditions to the scriptures. You add to the scriptures. People accuse me, you're not, you're not exegetical. You don't go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. I I, I do. I tell more stories than probably most pastors do, but I would ask this question to you. Show me where that is. Oh, the whole counsel of God's word. Yeah, but where does it say that you have to completely stay to this? I believe in context, which I always apply. You got to wear a Hawaiian shirt. And we add to the culture of Christianity, the leaven of the Sadducees is this idea of taking away from the word of God. And then the, the leaven of Herod is corrupt government, this idea of softening the truth for the sake of potential, excuse me, political correctness. And God just says no. And I'll leave you with this last thought, especially in regards to the, the parable of the mustard seed, this huge tree. The, the seed represents abnormal growth, outward abnormal growth. And we worship that. I mean, I'm surprised anyone comes to this church. You can barely find it. And I like that. I mean, you're here for the right reasons, I hope. And this this abnormal growth, outward growth, and then the leaven is this idea of permeating inward growth, void of substance, full of gas. There's the church. We have no power, no sustenance, no ability to change the culture. And I would, I, would, I would say this to the dads today on Father's Day. You're the priest of the home. And the more local the government, the greater the freedom. And when it says in Acts that they turn the world upside down, all governments change that day. I'm accountable to the Lord. That's the primary government. I'm doing his bidding. And what he says is good. And the, to apply theos, nomos, his law on the earth as it is in heaven. Yes, God. Now I come to my family 
And I raise my children as the priest of the home and I'm a, I'm a thermostat, not a thermometer. I set the temperature. I don't read it. I bathe my wife in the water of the word. I raise my children in the love and the admonition of the Lord. I create citizens who understand these things. Then it comes to church government and the healthier the church is because the healthier the scriptures. And, and, and most Calvary chapels, when, when something bad has happened to the pastor, the church still holds together because regardless of the implosion of his character, the word of God has taken root in the lives of the congregants and they survive. And then from the church government comes local government. We start to affect change in our city council and our school board. And we start to work for the sake of our children, the community in which we live. And we're, we're not caustic and we're not mean. We're thoughtful and we're kind and we're civil. We set that standard and we engage. And we, and, and we don't tear up the tears. We don't hurt them. We love them. People aren't, people aren't the enemy. They're the opportunity. And then we get to the county and state and federal, and it's all downstream. And, and, and here, dads, today, we change, we change the stream. We're fixing the source, and it begins with you, dad. It begins with you, and that's revival. Get engaged. Prepare the soil. Scatter the seed. Start with your life and with that of your family, and watch what happens in the days to come. And may God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for these parables. And I pray, Lord, that we have done correctly by you, Holy Spirit, to honor you, that you would lead us into all truth. And God, as we spend time in worship and also in prayer, I would ask, Lord, that you would move in the hearts of the dads just to come forward and say, would you pray for me? And just like Elisha said to Elijah, I want a double portion. I want to be that dad that prepares the soil and scatters the seed. I want the days ahead to be better than the days behind. I want to be powerfully used. And Lord, I pray your blessing on the prayer team as folks would come forward for prayer. And I ask that you do a deep and abiding work in our lives. And God, I do want to say thank you for your faithfulness. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.